I'm Kat Cho, author of the Gumiho Duology and Once Upon a K-Prom. And I'm Clarabelle Ortega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings, and this is Write or Die. Yay, we did it. We introduced ourselves. Um, <laughs> it's just going to be one of those days, I think, where I have yeah. no thought, no like through line for my thoughts. So get prepared. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm really tired cuz I went I I went to the pool and then I took like a fat nap after. You know what <laughs> the pool always makes you so tired It and does. Hungry? It does. Why? I mean, I it, I I guess it could be cuz you're under the sun, but I get tired of indoor pools too. So maybe it's like yeah, it's even when you're even when you're kind of um treading water or floating like your your muscles are kind of stiff right because you're trying yeah. to hold your boy hurt yourself buoyant so i think like your body is is kind of using your muscles way more than you think you are at all times yeah and i didn't it wasn't like i was in the pool the whole time like i was yeah. reading by the pool because mm-hmm. um, i have uh i was do, doing a blurb i felt fancy i was on the <laughs> phone with my niece and i was like telling her all the stuff I'm doing and I was like oh my god people who are hearing me are probably like who is this bitch oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so what what have you been up to lately I mean we're recording this way before this episode is gonna go live mm. but I still think it's nice to kind of tell people where we are in our process sure um well so I just turned in past pages for Ooh. witchlings and I have to say I don't think that I have ever worked as hard on a book than I have on uh, than I have on this book in particular like I've worked harder and like been more like intense about revisions and everything and it's been a lot (laughs) it's been really tough but like in a way that it makes me excited because I'm working so hard on it because like I love it a lot Uh and because my editor Emily, I love you, but my editor is a demon. She's like <laughs> so good at her job and she is so quick. Like I'll hand some something in and like two days later, she'll be like, I finished reading. Here are your notes. And oh, I'm my like, gosh. How? No. <laughs> that is not normal um, in publishing. So <laughs> no, it's not. Emily has been pushing me, but it's cool because she really matches my intensity level in terms of like work mm-hmm. and and it's been really great for me and it's you know when you have someone who challenges you but that makes you better at what you're doing mm-hmm. that's really been my experience with my editor and with the process Aww. for witchlings and reading um I was doing my past pages and then I was with my partner yesterday and he was like I really like when you're reading your own stuff and you start laughing or crying <laughs> um and I, ca- I guess I did that a lot with witchlings because I'm very very attached to to them and also the book is so funny and I just I'm just really so I can't wait for people to read it like Aww. I was obviously excited for people to read Ghost Squad it was my first book but like I feel like witchlings is like I really s- leveled up a mm-hmm. lot mm-hmm. and I'm just really really excited for people to read it because I think the story is great um and I've been working on a whole bunch of other stuff too that I can't talk about because literally none of it has been announced there's yeah. like beep and then there's beep um, <laughs> you self-bleeping yourself yeah and then love and it. then finalizing stuff for frizzy we're working on the cover for the graphic novel right now which is so hard because 
Rose, um, the illustrator, is just so amazingly talented. Mm -hmm. And everything they've sent is like, how am I supposed to pick any of this? That's so amazing. It's such a it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem, yeah. you know. Yeah, and that's it. It's just is hard, you know, that kind of stuff. That's exciting. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm excited for people to be read witchlings as well as myself i've read little snippets yeah but i can't I'll, wait to read I'll, the whole thing yeah when i get my next like the next pdf should be in like the right design because they were using the ghost squad like template for design mm -hmm. for a bit when i get the next one that's like more cleaned up i will send it to you yay i feel so special um <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I felt I kind of felt that way about my second book, too, even though it was a second book in a series. So it was a sequel. Um, mm -hmm. I still was like really excited for people to read it because I did feel like I had honed the story more. Um, mm -hmm. And I do credit my team with that a lot. I think like sometimes when you're writing by yourself um, or even when you have critique partners, oftentimes our critique partners are on the same level as us. So we might not see something that a person who's been in the industry for just like years and years might pick up on much quicker. Um, so I felt really lucky that I had, you know, such an experienced agent and such an experienced editor for my um, debut duology. And so I learned so much from them when I was revising Wicked Fox but there was just some things where like we had to brainstorm how to fix it in a way that was really, really creative because like uh, uh, like the easier solution would potentially be like just rewriting the whole book, but we didn't have time for that. Um, so then when I wrote, wrote Vicious Spirits, I used a lot of the lessons I learned. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to use the term leveling up just because I feel like that's really subjective. Like a, mm -hmm. is a book really better than another book like that? It's different for every reader. Um, but I was like super duper excited for Vicious Spirits because like I could see where I had evolved in my writing. Mm. Um, and it made me so happy because actually, I don't know if you felt this, but I was really worried about like the sophomore slump, you know, kind um, of thing. I, di I didn't, re I, I think because maybe because my first my first two books are well not standalone because witchlings is a series but because mm -hmm. ghost squad was a standalone i i didn't really feel that with the second book like i've i always assumed that the sophomore slump for, were, was more for like people who wrote series um oh, i think I it's just, the opposite it, it's just for it's just for anybody's second book basically yeah i think it's like if your book is well received then people will have certain expectations Expectations for the next book you write, whether it's the sequel or Listen, another man, book. Listen, man, my readers are twelve. All right, <laughs> they're they love me. Those kids love me, and if they don't, they're gonna let me know, and 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 then I'll just do what I gotta do. But I've I try really hard. This is difficult. I try I try really hard not to let the sort of like tropes of being a writer mm -hmm. like fuck with my head yeah. because I feel like a lot of times we let those things in and we sort of like um they, they become a self-fulfilling prophecy right yeah. because you see so many other people feeling this thing and obviously it's a thing right it's like a real thing it's not like they're making it up but I don't think everybody necessarily goes through it mm -hmm. um so I just sort of like ignored that and had fun and also <laughs> I also think because like technically the second book that I wrote was my graphic novel not witchlings oh yeah that's it just true. so happens that it's coming out 
before because of how graphic novels work. Um, so I think that gave me some padding also because it was like a completely different format and it was just like really fun for me. You mean it's coming um, out after? It's coming out after Witchlings. Yeah, yeah. It's coming out after. That's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I didn't I did not feel that. Maybe I'll feel it for like my my third book in retaliation. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think you're right though. I think like a lot of it can be psychosomatic, but like psychosomatic is is a real problem, especially when your work is creative, right? Because your mm. it's all about your brain, how your brain is working, how it's if it's functioning okay or, you know, for what you need it to do. And so if you get in your own head about it, then that means that the tool you're using to write your book is is not functioning in the way that you need it to work in order to write your book. Um, mm. And so I do I do think like you that's really good advice that you have is like don't overthink it, like don't let it get in your head because yeah, it's not it's not always true and it doesn't have to be true for you and like why add extra pressure yourself you know outside of all the pressure we already have so I do really like that advice I I mean to be fair I I didn't I wasn't necessarily pressured when I was writing Vicious Spirits um in terms of like I didn't think people would like it um partly because I was um using main characters that I knew people had liked in the first book. I was like, people really liked these characters. I Mm -hmm. think they'll like this book. Um, The pressure was more like getting it done by the deadline and having it read clean um, for me. Uh, But yeah, I mean, now I'm past that. I I guess, I guess I'm uh, feeling pressure for K-prom for a different reason though because it's a it's a rom-com it's a different genre Mm -hmm. so that's an interesting pressure um that makes that makes sense to me I mean I feel like everything that you do that's like a new thing is gonna be like a little bit scary but like how exciting also right like so exciting I feel that when you have a creative job like it like we do it's really a blessing because you're always gonna have a new challenge ahead even if that challenge is like a new book it's still a new world or a new story Mm -hmm. that you have to tackle and like how great to have those things in life so you don't have to like focus on like buying a bigger house because you don't know what else to do with yourself like you can (laughs) like pour your energies into something that's like you know a creative endeavor that's like enriching like for you and for like the world Um, (laughs) the whole world the whole world um but I, i i understand that though that's like really it's it's hard and it's scary um yeah to like to delve into those kinds of things and to delve into to fandom also there are things that i'm writing that are like part of like fandom culture uh-huh. and that's scary to me because fandom is really creepy sometimes oh no people get people can get really intense you know yeah um but you just got to do what you you got to do and um i think spending less time absorbing twitter helps in like every instance when it comes to the outside pressures and like the things that you feel like you should be feeling even if you're not yeah um, i i i didn't really think about the fandom part of writing k-prom but it's really true because it's k-pop and like k-pop right. fandom is no right. joke but it's no also joke. it's no joke it's really interesting too though because um i didn't do i didn't do research into like how the fans feel about k-pop because like mm. that's me like 
it's your own voices <laughs> Oh, my oh we don't use our own voices. We don't anymore, use own voices but, anymore. But, but, but as a joke, we can. Like, I feel it, like I like doing own voices jokes. For lack of a better term, I'm very own voices for K-pop fandom. I've been a, <laughs> I've been a fan of K-pop since like first gen 1990s K-pop, like old school K-pop. Um, so I very much understand like how it feels to love K-pop. But it's also, you know, what's so interesting about it, too, is that like I know that my experience as a K-pop fan is super duper different than other people's because Mm. I experienced it in a way where people made me feel really ashamed of loving it. Mm. I grew up in an area that like there weren't a lot of Korean people and like there weren't people who like really like really listened to K-pop. And so they pigeonholed it. Right. Like they thought it Mm. was like a throwaway type of music right um, they didn't take it seriously basically. they didn't take it seriously yeah and and so it's not there I couldn't talk to anyone about it and then when people found out that I liked it they kind of stereotyped me because I'm Korean and so it's it's interesting because I know that my fandom experience is not the same but I also didn't want to give that specific fandom experience to my character either right. um so it was just me just like it was kind of fantasy fulfillment of being like what a life I could have led if <laughs> if I could have loved <laughs> K-pop openly like my characters can um so that that was kind of nice in writing the book it's there's a, it's also a weird pressure to be honest because um and we've talked about this before but uh, but being an author of color and writing about our own culture, we definitely get like pigeonholed and get compared to other authors of our mm-hmm. community writing about their culture, even if they're writing like a completely different book. It just so happens they're both inspired by the same culture. And it's already happening to me because there are other really great K-pop young adults out there, ones that I've greatly enjoyed um one that I even worked on in my old job mm-hmm. and because of that though I know exactly how it's different and I know exactly that I, I know like that if these books were about music they were like just books about music in general like the American pop scene they wouldn't get compared as much as they're getting compared now yep. and I feel bad having negative feelings about it because on one side, I love celebrating all of these books and I love celebrating that they're out and I love talking about these other books. Like I would talk about them all day long and I do oftentimes. Um, but then you can't help but notice, you know, how much people yeah. love to compare us, especially as BIPOC. It's so messed up because like it's just an extension of what always ends up happening to like like by POC and like um diaspora uh people uh who like you can never make everyone happy like people are always going to be mad on both sides and also on top of that like you're just doing what you want what makes you happy and the opportunities that are coming to you like Mm -hmm. it's it's smart of like there's a huge k-pop wave right now like people are really into it like if you want to write a k-pop book and like publishers are asking for that then like why not you know what i mean like you should be able to like take advantage of that that's really cool um hopefully it doesn't like just end one day like and they keep like um 
you know, signing Korean authors, Korean American authors, and don't just stop like the moment that people lose interest. Like, we're done with you because we know how publishers can be. Yeah. But it's messed up that like all you're doing is like, is like uh, continuing your career and doing what's best for you and your career, but you're being judged on this like impossible scale of like, no, you, you, there can only be one. And oftentimes these are the same people who um, say that they are for diversity and for inclusion and for all of these things. And they're basically doing to you what publishers do to us all the time in mm-hmm. saying, we already have our this book for the season so we can't have another one yeah and it's kind of it's not kind of it is very wrong to do that Mm -hmm. um and every book is different depending on someone like even like what you said like your your real life experience to like what you're writing about even that has big differences between so you're gonna every book is gonna have a different perspective and i just feel like people if they don't want to buy a book then don't buy it but like don't make somebody feel bad about writing something especially when it's in a cell in celebration of their culture and make them feel limited i think that's really it's mean (laughs) yeah and and the thing is you know what's so um awkward about it is like it's not really the naysayers who are saying it you know it's people who like do want to support the book right and so and i'm so appreciative like i i really feel bad i don't want anyone to think that like you sh- like oh I'm not allowed to compare these books or I'm not allowed to like put them on lists together like that's not what I'm saying like and I would I've done it myself like I've you know I organized a whole Asian author book month during AAPI Heritage Month and I made a K-pop book panel um, because I thought it would be really fun but when we were so making cute. the questions for our panel like we definitely wanted to make sure that it wasn't just questions about like you know k-pop only like we are also authors we're also other things other than korean and other than k-pop fans um so like we talked about craft we talked about characters and and stuff like that so i it's it's more like me just like hoping that it's not going to be just this this one dimensional Mm -hmm. you know kind of way of viewing our books um even though k-pop is like might be the thing that draws you to it to begin with um, there's so much about each of these books that make them so unique and interesting and stand out on their own. Um, and I think like that's something that I'm just like really hoping to move towards more, especially when it comes to like BIPOC books and and diverse books is like, I think we're beyond the like, oh, let's just call this the Asian book of the season, you know? It's like, right. no, it can be more than that, you know? Um, and say, And calling it that implies that other books aren't allowed to also come up around the same time mm-hmm. that have similar themes and that's unfair yeah it's so heart-wrenching to watch people like be sad because they think like oh i can't have a book like this the plot can be completely different but just because it has like the same element and mm-hmm. you happen to share it uh heritage then suddenly like it's not allowed and like you said if it was different like just a music book that didn't have to do with like korea then (laughs) then no one would say anything right so it's just it it makes me a little sad but it doesn't matter because we're all gonna support once upon a key prom so hard (laughs) and we're gonna love it and then 
you know, RM's going to read it. Like, I've been planning in my head. <laughs> he's going to read it. He's going to love it. He's going to gonna love it. You're going to become best friends, which means I'm going to become best friends with him, too. Okay. The well, then, where is you introducing me to Lynn? Because you got to... You got to. Well, that's definitely going to happen because me and Lynn are pals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like you're one step ahead in my plan, which is for you yeah. to become best friends with well, Lynn. Well, we just got to wait and let it happen organically. Also, right? there's a panini, so that's fair. What? I said there's a panini. So like I don't. I Yeah. Keeping yeah, your family safe. That's very important. So yeah. I support that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I'm sending him uh, witch, witchlings. So nice. um, hopefully he loves it. Yeah. I mean, he likes Ghost Squad yeah so so we'll that's see. really cool um we didn't talk at all about the thing we were planning on talking we about. didn't we didn't but you know what it's fine <laughs> it's, this is something that i guess i was i was ruminating over i didn't even know that this is something that was bothering me until i just started spilling yeah. my heart out to you clarabelle you do this to me <laughs> i i feel like i feel like those conversations are really good because they're like the organic ones and the yeah ones, it's like sometimes you need to talk those things out yeah. And you don't know until you talk to like your best friend and like suddenly everything just like sort of like tumbles <laughs> out. I was like, I have feelings. Like, give me a give me a, a virtual hug. <laughs> oh my god. I'm hugging the air and pretending yeah. cat ghost is with me. Thank you. Yeah. Write or die is my is my therapy session. <laughs> Fine. In 18th century France, Marie must select her sister's victims to protect her. But when a child turns up dead, she's forced to break the curse or face who's really become a monster. With perfume magic, snowy forests, a brooding lord, and a girl who becomes a beast, Stalking Shadows is a retelling the way retellings should be done. Fresh and vivid, comparable to Angela Carter's work, Stalking Shadows is available September 14th. This week's guest is Gracie Kim. Gracie is a best-selling author of magic-infused middle-grade books who was vine-picked in Korea and sun-ripened in New Zealand. Her Korean mythology-inspired debut, The Last Fallen Star, published by Disney Hyperion Rick Riordan Presents, and the first in the Gifted Clans trilogy became an instant U.S. bestseller. Woo! <laughs> it was named by Indigo as a best book of 2021, was an Amazon best book ages 9 through 12, and was selected by Publishers Lunch as a 2021 buzz book. Called A Sparkling Yarn by Entertainment Weekly, the book has been featured in Time Magazine for Kids, Hypable, and Publishers Weekly, and has been optioned by Disney Channel for a live-action television series. Yay! Woo-hoo! That's exciting. <laughs> That's Welcome, Gracie! Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I am so excited for this TV show. It sounds like it's going to be magical. <laughs> I mean, I love anything Disney Channel. Like, so Yeah, we're definitely going to do like, we have to do like a Twitter. Like a watch party. Watch party. Yeah. I don't think there's been like a middle grade series. Or like TV show or anything like that that we've all been able to like watch together, yeah. From like yeah. from like a kidlet, like a Twitter kidlet person, right? Yeah, I feel like this must be the first. Yeah, I mean, other things have been optioned, I guess, but like, 
I don't know. I well, mean, mine is also just options. So whether it actually eventuates is a whole different can worm. That's true. Also, yeah, that's, you that's know how that works. That's but. very mm-hmm. reasonable and rational of you. But I'm choose to be. I choose to be excited. That <laughs> this is definitely <laughs> going We're to be made. Watch it together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think part of it definitely comes from the fact that like your book has such adorable witchy magical vibes too i can like imagine like i when i read it uh full disclosure everyone i did read this book to blurb it um thank you (laughs) but when i read it like there's certain books when you read it and you can just watch it in your head as you're reading it i definitely had that experience with your book so it's not surprising to me at all that i got plucked up so quickly um to be a series thank you so much for saying that it's so hard to have an objective view of your work right because you're so in it yeah Uh so it's um it's just so lovely to hear other people say nice warm fuzzy things about your book because you're like oh my gosh wait did I write something that was worth reading that's kind of cool it is so cool especially when you're working on something for a long time on your own and it just feels like this thing that's never going to be real and then suddenly people Mm -hmm. are reading it and liking it and that's such a nice feeling definitely definitely um okay so let's rewind the clock a little bit because we (laughs) (laughs) love the sound um yes we do all of our own sound effects here at write or die um so can you please let us know how you got into writing in the first place, fell in love with storytelling, got your aging, got your first book deal, the whole shebang? Yeah, sure. Okay, well, okay, I'll start at the beginning. So, I mean, I guess lot like a lot of other writers, I've always loved books um, since I was a kid. Like I remember Babysitter's Club was my jam. Like that was that was just yeah, nice. Claudia Kishi was my role model and my everything. Um, <laughs> and my dad used to take me to the library every week. And we weren't that wealthy, um, so we didn't get to buy many books. But honestly, coming out of the library with books stacked up to my chin, I felt like the richest girl in the world. And okay. my dad would um, go to all the local garage sales because I don't know if you do you call them yard sales. Anyway, we call them garage sales. Um, we call them to that buy too. cheap books. Oh, you do? Yeah. Cool. Um, and he would just find anything and everything um, he could to help me foster this love for, for reading. And that's actually how I discovered his dark materials, which is what got Ooh. me into fantasy in the first place. Yeah. Love that series. <laughs> um, but then, actually, I forgot about books completely. I think, um, I think school happened and then books became... Uh, more about work and assignments and I honestly I missed a whole lot of those touchstone books that a lot of writers of of our generation talk about like Twilight, um, Harry Mm -hmm. Potter, Hunger Games. I didn't read any of them but I just didn't I missed I missed it all it's so sad (laughs) I missed it all Um, and it was only when I I became a professional so I was working as a diplomat for the New Zealand Foreign Service and I was traveling around the world and forgotten this love for books. And then a few things happened, I guess, in my life that kind of converged in the space of a few years that, I don't know, in some ways put a spotlight on my life and made me re reconsider where my life was going and what I wanted my life to look like. 
Um, so one of the first things that happened was um, I was living in Taiwan at the time. I was sent there for two years just to learn the language fluently so that, well, I'm still not fluent, but they sent me there with the hope that I would learn the language enough that I could use it um, in my actual posting in Beijing afterwards. So I was in Taiwan and it was this weekend and I was crossing the road on a Saturday night at a busy intersection with a friend of mine. We were going to a birthday party and I remember I was carrying this cake and then this swish happened behind my hair. Like I, re I remember my hair like flowing in with the gush of wind behind me and then a huge thud. Um, sorry, I should say that there's probably content warnings that should go in <laughs> before this video you're listening. But anyway, this concrete truck um, hit the two people behind me and oh. missed me by literally the hairs on my head. I mean, my hairs got hit by the by the gush, but oh, wow. the, the people that were behind me got hit. And um, there was a child, uh, and I won't go into too much detail, obviously, because it's not not great to talk about but a child um, lost her life on the spot and I held the hand of the mother um, as she died and I remember sitting there on this road um, thinking what is this if if life can be taken away so easily mm -hmm. um, there has to be more to this existence what are we here to do? You, you know, the, the age old questions about the purpose of life that yeah. happens when we face something like death. So anyway, that was the first thing that happened. And then the next thing that happened was when I moved to Beijing, I um, one day at work couldn't see my computer monitor properly. And I figured I wear contact lenses or glasses. So I assumed I just needed a new prescription. Um, but I went to get my eyes checked. And the ophthalmologist checked my eyes. She sat, sat back and she, she basically said, I don't really know how to tell you this, but if you don't get emergency surgery within the next 24 to 72 hours, you're going to be blind. Oh, wow. Um, so I had this emergency surgery in China. And then for the duration of recovery for months afterwards, they had to keep both my eyes covered. So I was essentially blind for a while. And... I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, you know, go to the bathroom by myself, shower by myself, eat, let alone um, read or watch um, watch TV. And funnily enough, it was when I was unable to read that I rediscovered books. I was like, oh my gosh, remember that thing <laughs> I used to do that I can't do anymore, even though I haven't done it for the last how many years? Um, it made me crave stories again. Uh -huh. So that mixed with what had happened in Taiwan earlier, also with me meeting the love of my life, um, who is now my husband, who made me feel like I could do anything in my life and and kept asking me what I wanted from my career and my life. What was this ideal world um, and future we could build together? Mm -hmm. It all kind of converged into this perfect storm. And I came back to books, you know, this love oh. that I had of books. Oh, yeah. I love that and so much. <laughs> that's how I... I found books again, and it was at that point I realized that none of the books that I'd loved as a kid had people like me in them, uh, and I mm. I was so upset about that, and then I realized, stop complaining, stop whining. If you feel affected by it, then do something about it, um, so yeah. I started to write. That's yeah. amazing. That feeling, I totally get it, the whole, like, I wish that there had been books with characters who looked like me growing up. Um, mm -hmm. So then this inspired you, I assume, to kind of yeah. get your butt in gear. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I started writing. Um, and my first manuscript, which was a YA, it died a very quick death. Um, I queried it to Aww. about three agents. And I, I think I got one full, but all, you know, all rejections. It was very clear. But it did get me um, into Author Mentor Match, a mentoring program. Oh, and I yeah. remember my, yeah, it was, a, it was honestly the best program for me um, in, in that it it gave me my writing community. Um, and for that, I'll be eternally grateful. Oh, that's and so my good. mentor... <laughs> at the time, Rebecca Barrett, she said, when she saw my manuscript, she said, um, you've obviously got something you can write, but this manuscript, it ain't it. Like, throw it away and start again. And wow, tough love. It was, I know, and it was <laughs> the best thing she could have ever said to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had just read Labyrinth Lost by Zoraida Cordova and was so inspired by the idea of there being diverse witches. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how um, The Last Form of Star as a concept came about. I channeled all these stories that I grew up listening to by my parents and my late home money. Um, and I wrote this book, um, which again, originally started life as a young adult novel, but I ended up entering oh. it into a DV pit okay um which was fun um and i ended up uh just querying about 15 agents that came out of the dv pit process um i think i got about nine fulls of which one turned into a partial revise and resubmit request um, okay and that turned into my agent offer that's amazing and so at that point it was it still ya or you're doing yeah okay yeah, definitely still ya um, and it was all, everybody else's rejections, which I always like to mention because, um, you know, we all like the idea of having lots of offers and, mm -hmm. and having the choice. But honestly, for me, it wasn't just the one, yes, it was the one maybe that was all I needed. Um, I love And then that. we revised a whole lot. <laughs> and, I, um, and we, yeah, we went out on sub, um, and again, on sub, I didn't get an initial offer or like a mountain of offers. It was just a partial R and R again, and that was at at that point that they asked if I'd be willing to age it down to a middle grade. So that's oh, okay. how the middle grade happened. Uh, and then yeah, and then it came. I think I sent it back the following month, and then a month after that, um, Disney came back with an offer, and it was at that point they told me that they'd like to publish it under Rick Ryden Presents, which killed me in all the best possible ways um, and funnily enough uh, the news came when I was at my 12-week pregnancy scan um, and so and that's kind of your first real scan to confirm that mm -hmm. you've conceived right so I found out the same day that I was going to have a human baby and a book baby <laughs> oh my gosh that's so amazing I love that yeah, so much <laughs> that's so great I I'm I'm trying to picture the book right now as YA. I can kind of see it. I can, like, um, just like how the relationships are. Like, I could see them working as YA too. But I I think it works so well as middle grade. Just, you know, the friendships and the sister relationship and all of that. Like, it just really fits the themes of middle grade for for me at least as a reader. Um, so I think I'm glad that you thought that, that was a good idea because now we have this book <laughs> <laughs> so um 
I remember actually, and this might be a blast from the past for you, but I watched your TED Talk. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's so actually, you know, I did, I think I watched it before you you sold your book. I think I'd I'd heard about you because of either DV Pitt or our author mentor match. Um, and I don't know if you do this, but I, 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 my, uh, my friends and I, we definitely do the thing where it's like, oh, another Korean author, let me follow them and like support them and all this stuff. Cause it gets of so, course. it's so exciting. Oh, it really is. It really is exciting. It's like, yay, another one. Join the club. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I, I followed you for either because of author mentor match or, or DV pit. And I saw the link to your Ted talk and I thought it was just so well done and I really loved your message um and I, I don't want to say the story because I think you tell it so well so but do you mind kind of just giving a breakdown of like you know the thought process that went into your choices that led to you eventually giving a TED talk about this yeah sure so when I first decided that I was going to start writing, I thought, well, okay, I need a good brand name, right? Like your name gets published on these books. I need something that's going to sound good, but also will be able to sell books. And in my head at the time, I mistakenly and very erroneously thought that a Korean name would prevent me from being able to to succeed and get a book published. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I said it was a marketing and um, like a business decision, but really, if I dug deep, it was because um, I had internalized this belief that my Korean identity was something to be embarrassed about um, and to be shameful of uh, because of the way I was raised. Um, and I had a really good childhood, but but there was still racism in New Zealand as mm-hmm. well. Um, I remember you know, being chased home by kids screaming racial slurs or kids oh. spitting in your lunch and throwing stones at me and, you know, terrible things that yeah. that over time, um, yeah, make you believe things that aren't, um, aren't helpful, you mm-hmm. know, about who mm-hmm. you are and your identity. So anyway, I decided on the name Gracie Goldheart because Goldheart, Kim means gold mm-hmm. and heart because um, my, I use my married name as well. I have a double-barreled last name. And so Hart represented the name of the man who stole my hat. So great to see gold hat. Um, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but but I very quickly realized um, when we went on our honeymoon to Korea and my husband who had taken Kim as a part of his legal name as well because he's that cool. Um, <laughs> he, <laughs> he was like, let's go to Gyeongju, which is where our specific clan of Kims are from because oh. I want to know more about where we come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we went to Kyungju and we found out that the first Kyungju Kim, the, the mythology or the folklore story of our origin story, is that the king found this golden casket hanging off a tree um, that was emanating this golden light. And inside he found this child um, above this crowing rooster. I don't know what the rooster has anything to do with, but anyway, he found this baby. And he was so enamored with this child that he named him Kim or um Kim after the golden light that emanated from it. Mm-hmm. That was the birth of our clan of Kims. And I was so like taken aback by the story that we have an origin story. <laughs> <laughs> um, like superheroes have origin stories, uh, not, you know, <laughs> random people living in New Zealand. Um, so that was cool. 
And then I dug deeper and I thought about what my name meant, you know, like, is it just mm -hmm. my name? Is it somebody else's name as well? And I overheard my dad talking to his friend about me writing and his friend was like, well, why is she writing as this other name? Like, she's a Kim. She's your daughter. Doesn't she know that? Mm -hmm. um, and it made me realize that the Kim name wasn't just about me, but it was about my, my dad and his dad and um, our family legacy. And I love my dad more than anything. He is an angel. Um, he is he he is just one of those people that um, I feel like I'm telling lots of stories, but here's another little story about my dad. <laughs> he ran a restaurant for a very long time, and he one night I was working there on a Sunday night, and um, this guy came in, and I saw him stealing sushi. Uh, like, a, literally, he was putting sushi pieces oh. in his pocket. Oh, my goodness. And okay. I know. And I went in to tell my dad. I was like, Dad, somebody's stealing from us. You need to do something about it. And he came out, and he and he served this, this, this young man and said, is that all you're buying today? Because he had only had, like, two little pieces of sushi in his packet because the rest was hiding in his pocket. Yeah. Um, and the guy said, yes, this is all I'm getting. I can't afford it. And so dad said, okay, well, today everything you want is on the house. So he packed oh. him up with like more food, soup, drinks, everything. And he came, oh. like he left the place like juggling this huge bag of food. Um, and I was like, why did you do that? And he like stole from you and you are now like congratulating his actions. That's not how life works. And I remember at the time dad said to me, you know what, um, daughter sometimes people need a reminder that the world cares that there is love that exists in the world um and sometimes if you can play that part it is your part to play oh. and I, it was what it is i thought it was kind of weird to be honest <laughs> uh, you know that's a lovely sentiment but you can't condone stealing <laughs> that's um, the next year it was about a year later. The same guy came in to the restaurant again a night when I was working. And he asked to look, uh, he asked to speak to my dad. And he was like dressed in this nice crisp shirt, I remember. And in front of the entire um, patronage of the restaurant, he said to my dad, I came in here a year ago and I stole from you. And you piled me up with more food and you showed me such kindness that it changed my life. And so today I've come in here to tell you that I'm sorry. Um, and to thank you and to pay for my 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 food. Oh so my pay gosh. for his food. Oh, and I honestly, I know I'm like I, crying. Crying. I was bawling my eyes out <laughs> because I had realized my dad's wisdom and um his his love. And the funniest part was like honestly the restaurateurs who were the people at the restaurant who were who were listening because everybody was eavesdropping were yeah. kind of like oh my gosh and my dad <laughs> was like oh that's nice and then he just went back into the kitchen and started washing the dishes <laughs> he's like this is normal this is life <laughs> um, so anyway that's a random story but I love my dad because that's the kind of man he is and mm -hmm. I realized my name was so much more than the the taunts of random kids in my childhood that made mm -hmm. me feel embarrassed about my name like my name was my pride and my badge of honor um, and the legacy that I had, I was carrying for my ancestors. So anyway, long story short, I got rid of Goldheart and I kept Kim. I love it. <laughs> I love that story so much. It was, and it's, uh, we'll, I'll link the Ted talk too, because I, even though you just went over it, like I just, I really like 
the TED Talk. I thought you did such a good job. Like, also, TED Talk is super cool. So I'm like, kudos to you for, like, having that feather in your cap. Do you know what's so crazy? I watched that TED Talk forever ago. I think you sent it to me, Kat. I'm not sure. I, I probably did because I was like, this is so good. Everyone And I just it. realized that you're the person from the TED Talk. So <laughs> great. That's amazing. Because when so so I lost power and I just came back and I was like in the middle and I was like, I've heard this story before. Like, I know this. I was like, I know this story. Am I making it up? what's going on but no <laughs> it's definitely because of the TED talk so amazing that is so cool and and the thing is it's like I think that you know I, I know that you prefaced it by being like you were foolish for thinking that but I, I I don't think you need this isn't something that you should take the onus on yourself for uh for having this mindset um, especially because you were successful in breaking free of the mindset. I think that this industry has, until very, very, very recently, constantly told us that like we should expect less if we want to be so bold as to celebrate our own cultures and that we will, would it would be a niche story. It would be like a smaller audience. Like it wouldn't sell foreign rights. It wouldn't sell this. It wouldn't sell that. Like lowering our expectations down so much that, you know, in our minds, if we wanted to find success, you know, and actually be able to live off of this career, then we had to change to fit what, you know, this industry told us was, quote unquote, the norm. But so I, I think that, you know, a lot of authors have different, even even if they didn't like have a pen name per se, I think a lot of BIPOC authors do have a similar mental journey that, that we've had to go on to get to a place where we feel we're like we're allowed to tell our own stories, which is such a, such a sad thing. Um, yeah. You know, while you were talking, it reminded me that, um, so yeah, I've been, I've been so, so ecstatic to get some feedback from readers, right. Who will message me or send me little videos of the parents will send me little videos of their kids um, talking about the last one star and how they felt about it. And I've had, I guess, like I can separate the the message into, into two categories. So one category is Korean or Asian diaspora kids who are saying, thank you so much for putting us on the page. We feel seen and represented. Like that obviously makes my heart sing in ways I can't even verbalize. But funnily enough, there's this other category that has made me really like, has really blown me off my feet in a way that I didn't expect, who are kids that are not who I, I thought would resonate with the book the most. Does that make sense? So for example, I have this one video of a young um, middle grade white boy and he's like the cutest thing, little braces and he's kind of geeky. And he, you know, he's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for writing my favorite book of all time. Um, <laughs> I watch that video sometimes when I'm feeling down. I just watch that video again and again because there is something about the fact that a young white boy who may not have as much exposure to Korean culture or Korean mythology has still been able to love the book and appreciate the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny, it's what you were saying, like we we shouldn't have to feel this way that somehow we have to work harder or justify why our stories have value. But this is proof of it, the proof that I, it it resonates with me in a special way because I wasn't expecting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
No, that's very true. And I, th I, I think that's totally valid. I think in, in s it's an interesting experience, and I think it is kind of very specifically experience that marginalized authors probably experience of being like, oh, wait, other mm -hmm. people yeah. like, are, are allowed to like my book? Like, I was told, yeah. I was told that wasn't the case. So <laughs> yeah. what's the truth now? Kind of like, you know, finally seeing, like, what's actually true versus, like, what, you know the this um industry has like battered into us like don't don't hope for more don't hope for more and and i do think like not everyone is saying that to us and to be cruel or to manipulate us i think some people really truly believe that that's the case because it's all they've ever seen but then mm -hmm. it's on them to unpack their biases it's not on us to cater to them yeah um, and i think more and more of us are, are starting to realize that and to learn that and i and i love that your story's out there both this TED Talk and as well as your book, because I think that people can look to you as a beacon to be like, this author chose to be her complete self and look at what she's achieved. And I think that that's really great. It's so great. And kids will love a good story. Like, kids don't care. They just want to read something that's compelling to them. But mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, parents or librarians don't, or educators just don't put those books in their hands because... Of biases you know but if you just give a kid a book that they're gonna like love the story they're not they're not gonna they're not gonna care that the the uh protagonist is of a different heritage and they are like mm -hmm. they just want to read something cool they're also not like a witch i'm sure you know most kids <laughs> but they could they're still okay with we don't reading know about these things <laughs> most of them aren't there are some but you know what i mean like you you can just let kids like like let them explore different things and they will yeah. like, they will they will be so open to to it if you just let them but mm -hmm. but i've heard stories of like people being like oh we don't have a big x community um here so we don't stock this kind of book and it's like do you think that only those kinds of people will want to read this kind of book and why do you assume yeah. everyone wants to read books by white people then like it's yeah. not the default <laughs> i mean like there's not there is not a big ancient Greece population anywhere in the world. Um, I'm pretty sure. And yet, look at how great and Rick yet. is doing. <laughs> and know, yet. Like... <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, the fact that young people um, are getting exposure to, to such diverse stories that we weren't. I, mm -hmm. I just, it fills me with such joy that, I don't know, when, when they become of our age like how different will this oh, landscape yeah. be i yeah. hope lots different. i think it's going to oh, make yeah. a big difference i really do think do. that it will make a big, big difference in so many different ways even if it's just knowing that you don't have to look a certain way to be a hero or to be beautiful or to be any of the things that like protagonists mm -hmm. are in books right like yeah just that like internalizing that will help their self-esteem so much and that's a really big deal yeah and there's only so much that our parents can teach us you know and mm. they they and it's not their fault like they've experienced what they've experienced but like that's where you know we can as kids like you can fill in the blanks with the stories that you consume i mean i i learned a lot from books that i read like there are certain things where people are like when did your parents first tell you that this existed and i was like oh no i learned that from reading um, like my parents never had to teach me about that kind of stuff. And I think that 
just knowing that that's the can be the case for certain things why can't it be the case about like opening your mind to other cultures or other people who don't necessarily live in your current community but you will potentially meet in the future um i think that that's it's totally fair um but Kidlet's doing good, I think, you know, in, in terms of, like, you know, in comparison to other publishing yeah. <laughs> categories. Yeah, we're actually changing. It's, we it's are. so, yeah, it's so heartening. It is. It really is. So, um, you know, your first book is obviously already out, but this is a series. Mm-hmm. So how it goes is. it? How goes it with writing? <laughs> how <laughs> goes it? Um, so it's a trilogy, and the second book, The Last Fallen Moon, is coming June next year, June twenty two. So uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just um, doing copy edits on it now, so that's almost there. And then the last um, in the trilogy, The Last Fallen Realm, will come the following year, and I'm just about to start drafting that. Um, give oh me. My gosh. We need Give to send you coffee. Yeah, Please. coffee and wine. <laughs> oh, New Zealand has really good wine. I oh, know because it's just so good. During the London Book Fair, okay, one cool thing about international book fairs that I don't know if people know <laughs> is that around four thirty, five o'clock, all the booths just like have drinks. Like no, wine. really? Yes, like wine, beer. It's like a little like like finger foods like it's like a party every night um and in london uh and frankfurt also the new zealand booth is always my favorite because they just have just bring wine (laughs) over with them and oh oh, it was just just the best and everyone was like new zealand's having a party tonight we all gotta go (laughs) that sounds amazing us Kiwis, we're, there's only like 5 million of us, actually less than 5 million of us, and we love to make friends, but we know we're the little kid, you know, we're like the little kid in the corner that no one really knows or sees, and so we got to bring all the cool treats to the party so other people see us and like us, like Listen, it's the thing that we do. Doing yeah. a good job at That's International so- Book Fair. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I went to New Zealand with my sister. Um, she was like doing a conference there and she's like, you want to come? And I was like, yes. And that's where we went. We did go to a vineyard. It was delicious. And um, but it's the first place I ever tasted a flat white. And I got like really addicted to it. I was like and then I was like, I can't believe we don't have this in the United States. And then we did kind of get it like a couple years later. And I was that person who was like, it's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, flat whites are my drink of choice. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, they're so good. I mean, I, yeah, they're so good. I will still get it here. Like, if it's on the menu, I'll always order it. But, like, I can just, like, it's – I also did this to myself because the first place I ever had tapas was Barcelona. So, like, mm-hmm. it's kind of like when you've had the best already. Yeah. You know, exactly. nothing will ever be the awesome. same. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh. Honestly, the science that goes behind making a perfect flat white with the microphone levels mm-hmm. and what have you, it's quite a, <laughs> quite a thing. It is. It's a thing. It's, a, it's totally a thing. Um, so for anyone who hasn't already read the first book or looked up the first book, can you just give our listeners a quick summary of what The Last Fallen Star, the series, is about? Absolutely. So The Last Fallen Star um, and the whole Gifted Clans trilogy is inspired by Korean mythology. 
And I'd say it's suited for fans of Percy Jackson. Um, it is published by Rick Riordan Presents. But it's essentially about Korean-American witches. Um, and it's about forbidden spells, um, unbreakable sisters and family bonds, but particularly about one adopted girl's search for belonging. And her name is Riley Oh. She's 12 years old. And she is desperate to become a healing witch, just like her parents and her sister. But she was adopted. And her biological parents weren't witches, which means um, despite knowing all the healing spells she's ever heard um, back to front, she can't do magic. And then one day, her sister Hattie, she finds about uh, finds out about the spell in which she can share half of her magic with Riley. It's basically the perfect plan, except that, except that the um, spell is extremely dangerous and very much forbidden. <laughs> Does it stop them? Of course not. Uh, do they <laughs> cast the spell anyway? Of course they do. So as you can imagine, yeah. things go terribly wrong, as is want to do. And when Hattie's life ends up hanging in the balance, Riley has to go on the search for the last fallen star, whatever or wherever it may be, or risk losing her dear sister forever. Amazing. And that was the aspect of the book that I really latched onto this sister relationship. Like they were both willing to do so much for each other to make each other happy and to make each other safe. And I think like it's just so beautiful to like see these sibling relationships in Kidlet and to see how, you know, bonded they are and everything. I mean, of course, I really loved all the magic. I loved um, how you created each clan out of a different like Korean creature or origin myth. Um, I thought that was so clever. And I felt I, I felt like really um, involved. Like like I, I felt like I was included because I was like, oh I know the bear, the origin bear woman myth. Like the first woman came <laughs> was created from a bear. Like obviously Kumiho. I I definitely latched onto that one too. And I love that the Gumiho was like a K-pop star. <laughs> that is amazing. Because she's so glamorous, Clarabelle. I feel like, like that, the Gumiho are beautiful. that makes so much sense to me. <laughs> right? It just made me so happy. And, and like the way that you incorporated it in a way that didn't like feel like someone had to know these myths. Um, before reading it like it was just like cool details that were magical in their own right um, and it was just so seamlessly incorporated and and in a way it really felt to me um, very like Korean American too which I felt really was was really fun because Korean uh, Asian mythology because Asians are so othered often feels very foreign sometimes um, because we're, we're often like seen as separate, you know, from the Western world. But I, I loved how you kind of, you know, you made the like dragon scooter. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm giving too many details. These are, there's so much more to this book. Um, but everyone has to go buy it. the prerequisite 20 copies. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I just feel very grateful that um, you got that that feeling from the book actually because what I really wanted to do I guess with this book was to represent somehow in a allegorical metaphorical way the diaspora experience mm -hmm. because like you say Kat I think there are beautiful Asian mythology books out there but 
I often, when reading them, feel like they aren't my experience either because mm -hmm. we grew up in this weird in-between place, right? Where yes. we weren't quite this, we weren't quite that. And so the idea of um, what Korean folklore and mythologies might look like in, a, you know, in this case, in a modern-day American setting, um, I, I love that you got that vibe from the book and that you enjoyed that. That makes me feel very happy. Oh, yes, definitely. I, it was, I mean, I, I was reading, I was like, this is perfect for Rick Riordan Presents because it does exactly, you know, what he accomplishes with his Percy Jackson series. So it made yeah. me it made me quite pleased as both a reader and as a fellow author. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Gracie, everyone who's on Ride or Die tells us their most embarrassing publishing related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. You could do either or, you could do both. It's up to you. Okay. I will tell a very short embarrassing story um, and then I will share something I wish I knew before I started. So my embarrassing story is actually not that embarrassing, but I found it mortifying. Um, so this was the call with um, my now agent. And, you know, I was the first ever call of its kind that I'd done. I was so flustered. I get nervous anyway at the best of times. and. I thought I'd really prepared, but I obviously hadn't because at the very end, um, she said, so is there anything you want to ask me? And I just went blank. You know, I was like, what am I supposed to ask her question? What, 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 but, 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 and then I just mumbled. Um, so do you like books? Was my question. Um, and I was mortified. I, I was really mortified. I was like, what kind of question is that? I was like, you were a diplomat for like 10 plus years. You could have come up with a better small talk question than, um, so do you like books? But anyway, that is what I asked her. <laughs> you and did your laughed. best. You, yeah, you did your best. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that she understood. <laughs> and she's your agent now, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I should mention it to her. She'll probably find it funny now. Um but something I wish I knew before I started writing, oh gosh, I, you know, this, this actually, it's actually a little bit hard for me to talk about still, but I think it's really important to talk about these, these things. Um, one thing I really wish I knew before I started this whole career was that your self-worth is not determined by the success or your perceived success of your book or books. And I feel this so deeply because I have this fatal flaw, which is that I feel that everything is my fault. And if I reflect on that, it might, it's quite an egotistical to think about oneself, really, isn't it? That everything revolves around you. But when things go wrong or my high expectations of myself are not met, I blame myself. Like, I, it's, it's, it's my fault. I did something wrong. And I wish I'd known going into this that if your book doesn't do as well as you hope, whether it's, you know, getting as many sales as you hoped or not hitting lists or not getting chosen for a shiny accolade or getting all those starred reviews that you wanted, that your publisher isn't sitting there just hating on you, regretting having given you a book deal. Like people have more important things to do with their lives <laughs> and sit there and have those thoughts. But honestly, if I'm really frank, after the release of The Last Woman Star, that's how I felt. Like my, men my mental health really took a huge toll. And I think I'm only really coming out of the fog now because I felt like I had these 
arbitrary milestones that I'd put up, right? That I hoped that I thought I would achieve and that I thought others like my agent and my publisher and all the people that invested in me to achieve this, that they were all expecting from me. And when I didn't meet every single one of them, I honestly imagined them all sitting there being hugely disappointed in me and hating on me. And that made me like feel like I had to run away and hide and because I'd failed, right? I'd failed them, I'd failed myself. And this idea of that nothing less of perfect is is acceptable and therefore I might as well just quit. These horrible um, spiraling thoughts um, ended up surrounding me. And, and I guess what I've learned from this is um, life isn't perfect. You know, it's messy. Mm-hmm. It can be damn well disappointing. But I think what really matters um, is is how we get back up again and how we reshape that energy into something positive and ideally productive if you can. Because just because something's not perfect doesn't mean it's not valuable. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I guess if I had the, the foresight of hindsight, um, it would be that, yes, your self-worth is not linked with the perceived success of your book. And if people don't love your book, or the book doesn't do as well as you'd hoped by any arbitrary measure of yours. It's not a personal attack on you. Um, And there is so much more to life than your career, actually, or just the book even. I think Mm -hmm. balance is essential. There is so much more to appreciate and to derive joy from in life than just our ability to write books. Um, And I think it's important to remember that constantly because the type of people that a lot of us are so passionate about our work and and deriving so much of that self-worth from what we produce and the feedback that we get from others on that it's important but it's not the full picture i love that so much and can i just say first of all thank you for being so like honest and candid about that because i feel like it's something that a lot of people experience and don't talk about um and also, without even knowing it, you really called Kat out because, like, she needed to hear everything <laughs> that you just said. I was uh, wondering if you are going to bring that up, Clarabelle. <laughs> of course I was. So you know me. <laughs> before we – this isn't even recorded. This is my private conversation with Clarabelle before we started talking. And when we first started recording, Clarabelle's like, how are you? I was like, I'm fine. And Clarabelle's like, are you okay? And I was like, I just – I don't feel fulfilled right now. I'm not like writing a lot, so I just don't feel a lot of life fulfillment. And Carnival's like, your life isn't your job. <laughs> it feels like it. That's the thing, right? It feels like it so intrinsically. And that's I that's what I think is so hard um, to decouple, like to take a step back and breathe and say, you are not your book. You know, your book mm-hmm. is a part of you, but there is so much more to you than that. So much more to to life than um, what you can produce on paper. And, yeah. Yes, yes, for sure. And and thank you, thank you for inadvertently giving me that <laughs> message. <laughs> but it's and it's, it's very it's true. It's so interesting to me too how we are so hard on ourselves because like from the outside, um, like the perception, like when I look at like your like you and like your social media presence and everything I'm like oh uh, Gracie's doing really well like her book seemed like so cool and like I didn't 
think anything like oh she didn't do this or she didn't do that just like her book she Mm -hmm. seems like she's doing great you know and it's it's yeah it's kind of interesting how like what first of all what we show the public versus like what we're actually feeling and second like how 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 much we don't sort of like realize like all the successes that we are having because we're so focused on the things that we didn't achieve um Mm -hmm. and all those things are really interesting to think about agreed and i think we we need to be wary of that like the image i mean it's it's a social media problem Mm. you know in in general right that we only put out what we want people to see but it's so important for us as a community of writers to to share the the downs as well as the ups because it's Mm -hmm. not all rainbows and butterflies as much as we'd love it to be right it's hard um and i don't think we're doing ourselves any favors by pretending that the hard stuff doesn't exist it's there but it Mm. just means we need to support each other through the tough stuff so that we can enjoy the good stuff absolutely Mm -hmm. so true for sure Well, Gracie, thank you so much for talking with us and for sharing your stories with us. We had so much fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, I love your podcast. I listen to every episode. (laughs) I feel like, honestly, this is, yeah, it's definitely something I was, I was so excited to do. So thank you so much for having me and being, for being such, um, I mean, I don't know how much of this you receive because I, I feel like you guys are, are real public figures in the community and maybe <laughs> the message doesn't get to you as much as it should. But I'm so grateful for the work that you both tirelessly do for our community. Uh, um, I'm so great. Honestly, so grateful for it. And I feel so removed often, you know, being here in New Zealand away from a lot of the key communities that I'm part of in the US and listening to you guys makes me feel like I'm part of it too. So thank you Aww. so much. That's so thank sweet. You thank you for saying that. <laughs> so we appreciate it. This episode has made me emotional so many times. <laughs> um, Gracie, can you let everyone know where they can find you on the internet? Yes. Um, you can find me sometimes on Twitter at Gracie Kim. I am mostly on Instagram at Gracie Kim Writes, but I'm always available via my website, graciekim.com, either through the contact form there or my email address is available there too. Yay. Thanks so much. Everyone go buy all of Gracie's books right now. Pre-order. Bye. Or else. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.